In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Good Success, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Uh, I two things about last night. I need to uh, one I need to correct, and the other one I need to clarify. The correction was, I said that the Freemasons were founded in 1771, and I, I don't know if I was dyslexic when I was thinking of that. And some kept telling me there's not the numbers or there's something. The numbers were right; they just were in the wrong order. It's 1717 is when the um, uh, Grand Lodge was established in England, and that's considered the founding of modern-day Freemasonry, even though there were precursors to it. The second um, thing was, as I said, that the um, to clarify this, that the church had condemned the, uh, the theory of participationism and that uh, condemnation was a bit of a strong term. They actually, what happened was, is that the propagation for the faith in 1857 draw attention to the fact that the Protestants had come up with this idea and that it was erroneous. But they just kind of left it at that. Part of it was because you didn't need a formal condemnation, at least in that day and age, because of the fact that it's so obvious that what they're saying is incorrect. In fact, it's kind of funny about that theory that the Protestants actually came up with it because they were uneasy at the fact that the Catholic Church, they, the Catholic Church said that we had um, that we were the only true religion, and so they had wanted to come up with some way to where they could be part of this thing without being part of the Catholic Church. Of course, then to address that. The First Vatican Council then said that the principle of union is the papacy. The theologians in the Catholic Church, adopting the Protestant theory of participationism, shifted it very subtly. It's something I'm going to be writing a book on. Um, they they uh, subtly shifted it from apostoli- from unicity, the mark of unicity, that is the papacy, to apostolicity, to be part of the church that Christ established which in the past the church was very clear that apostolicity didn't suffice to have unity with the church because of the fact that the orthodox had valid orders, but they did not, uh, were not part of the church that Christ had founded because they didn't have unity with the papacy. Anyway, that all being said. Okay. Uh, after the shock last night, okay, um, and by the way, what we talked about last night was just the tip of the iceberg. It doesn't even get into things like abortion and all those things that are out there, all the sins crying to heaven for vengeance, etc. We're not even, and we can also just stand back and just get an objective look that even on a societal level, things are in chaos, right? They're just everything is just breaking down. The social order is down. And by the way, this breakdown in the societal order is not. Just normal decay. This is stuff that my point last night was we're in a battle for good and evil and the evil people are intentionally trying to destroy our culture, our country, our sovereignty, all those things. Um, in addition to trying to destroy the church, etc. Okay. So what do you do? Okay. There's two ways I want to approach this. The first is, is how do you approach this on a natural level? How do you navigate the situation on a natural level? If you look at uh, trying to achieve an end, St. Thomas says, you have to use a means. 
in order to get to the end. And those means are also surrounded by a set of circumstances, which affect how well you achieve your means, he says. Okay. The end is the salvation of your soul, obviously. That's the end. The means are twofold. One, there's a set of natural means, and then there's a set of uh, supernatural means, and the supernatural means we'll talk about this afternoon. But then we're also going to talk about circumstances because the circumstances can affect how well you achieve your means or they can even block your achieving the end. Sorry. And so we want to make sure that we understand what goes into all of this, achieving the salvation of your soul. Okay. Because of modernism, which is the synthesis of all heresies, uh, and because its tendency is to make the individual the principle of judgment about what's right and wrong or what is to be believed or not believed about God. In other words, it trans- ultimately it transposes it from God to us. Uh, so it's, 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 it's like the diabolic heresy, right? Because it is the one that makes us the standard of judgment rather than God. So with modernism, basically... It's an appetitive problem on one level in the sense that the person um, wants to make themselves and judge whether something's good, bad, or ugly based upon how they feel or relate to the thing. You might have heard me say this before, but one of the things that really bothers me is is with children today, um, some of them are already now in their early 20s. These are the people who went through the school system, and they would say, Johnny, 2 plus 2 equals 4. How do you feel about that, Johnny? There was this constant training that was done to judge the truth of a proposition based upon themselves and how they felt in relationship to it. And in modernism in the church, we are, uh, it, modernism began uh, quite a long time ago. The formal inauguration of it as a heresy considered as such, um, or the naming of it of a heresy was liberalism in Merari Vos. And in that document, the Holy Father basically, this is in 1832, the Holy Father pins it and say, says, he calls it liberalism, but when you read the description, it's just modernism, and it gets more and more developed. But the point is, is there's actually five stages of modernism. You can read it in my uh, work called The um, uh, Operative Points of View. It's right on the internet. And in, but we're in stage five which is the superficial stage. All the intellectual gas has run out, and so the stuff we're hearing is just vapid. I mean, it's just silly. It doesn't even make any sense, even to a, a normal human being, you know. And I often tell people, you know, I used to say this to my mom, um, because there was this one time when they were having a mass on television, and they picked the worst possible priest to put up there, right? I said, this guy isn't going to attract any normal male. He's going to look at that and just say, not having anything to do with that. So, okay. The point is, is that with modernism, because we're living in a superficial stage where it's very dumb, I mean, it just doesn't even follow basic rational principles, because of the nature of modernism and because it's so pervasive and it touches upon literally every single facet of the church, there is not, and if, if you can just think of this yourself, there's not one single doctrine, there's not one single liturgical practice, there's not one single devotion which they haven't messed with. Not one. So, the, uh, it used to be the big holdout was a, a, a rite of exorcism, but then they got to playing with that. 
But the point being is, is that they, they, it's literally one of those things where they have to change it all, but they did it very slowly and they did it very subtly. Okay. This means because it's in virtually every facet of Catholic life, you do not have the liberty of ignorance. If you don't do serious, hard study of your Catholic faith, you will end up a heretic unless God gives you an extraordinary grace, and those aren't too common. I mean, I've met a few people like that. It's kind of extraordinary. So, that means you're going to have to do, and that's why I said, in order to navigate this, in order to, part of the means is knowledge. Now, the knowledge is either going to come through grace, which enlightens the mind and strengthens the will, or it's going to come through serious study. You're going to have to study. So, I always say, I often tell people, if you think you already got this extraordinary grace, you're already deluded. And I can tell you that having been a pastor and a rector of churches in the traditional movement. Every trad, you talk to them, thinks they've got the doctrinal world by the tail. And all you got to do is scratch a little bit and some heresy will float to the top. It doesn't take too much time. Right? So, and a lot of it is, is because why? A lot of the stuff in the church's um, teachings require great precision and knowledge of distinctions which most trads don't know. So, for example, when you hear the debate about if a pope is a heretic, because all the saints are pretty consistent in saying that if a pope lapses into heresy, he loses his office. When you listen to that discussion, nobody's making the distinction between whether he was a heretic before, whether his election was valid or not, and, and if he, once he becomes pope, what are the distinctions and how does that work out? Nobody's even talking about that. Nobody, not even the guys that look like they actually know what they're talking about. So it's a gargantuan problem that even among the intellectuals, I'll be reading these guys who are going off and stuff and they're touted because they got these PhDs and stuff and there's this little, this, the distinction that was all the way through the discussion but it was very subtly talked about or just tangentially talked about but which determines the whole discussion and they don't have it and so they're off on la-la land. Okay. So, the other thing is too is if you really don't think that you suffer from imminence in some fashion, you're already deluded. It's part of original sin. The reason why modernism is such a pervasive heresy and it's so difficult is because of the fact that when Eve chose to eat the fruit and then Adam after her, they chose it choosing themselves over the will of God. That stuck all of us with a form of selfishness and self-centeredness that has to be ground out in a brutal fashion over years usually unless God gives you a lot of grace and so the principle already there to judge things based in line of yourself is, is, is a problem one of the ones I get the biggest gas out of is you'll make a distinction right and then someone will say well I never heard of that so since when is your knowledge the standard for what's true or not, right? So, and, or they never taught us that. Well, so that doesn't mean anything, right? So, again, there's that tendency to want to make ourselves just out of the fault. So one of the things you're going to have to really do is you have to study and presume you're ignorant. You know, one of the things that um, Plato said, which every philosopher and everybody afterwards that had any semblance of rationality would admit, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. So, 
and this is something which uh, is, is the recognition that you have to continue working on knowledge of the faith. The other thing is, too, is recognizing, look, there's some questions that are above your pay grade, right? So, for example, how, what you do with a heretical pope is above virtually everybody's pay grade in the church except for a very small handful of theologians, right? And this is also, so I tell people, don't even get involved in that discussion as a general rule. In fact, it was really funny because I had a discussion with somebody recently, and he said, he said, well, the reason that you can judge that he's not the pope is because he's not the pope. I'm like, you just begged the question. You just asserted what you're trying, you're, you're basically asserting in your conclusion, what's, or you're asserting in your premise what you're already trying to conclude. So I said, that's in a circular reasoning. I said, sorry, it doesn't work. So anyway, he just didn't think I was getting it. And I'm like, no, I think that you, it's a very basic logical fallacy that you're not getting. Okay. So you have to study and you have to study hard. You have to do a lot of study because this is something that's going to help you to understand not just the, the, the church, St. Thomas calls the virtue of faith when he infuses God, infusing it, the first purification of the intellect. And what that means is, is that it, that it teaches us, the faith teaches us our relationship to God, the truth about our relationship with God and our relationship with the created order. And so working on the faith and things of that sort will help that tremendously. Uh, this also means that as a general rule, uh, I tell people, don't get involved in blogs or in forums. Because, first of all, if you, if you pay close attention to that, in fact, it's funny because I have friends of mine that got involved in it. And I just sit there with a smile. And I said, God bless you for trying, right? Within a couple of months, their hair is all removed from their head from having been pulled out, and they realize that, that it's just a waste of time because people just don't get it. It's true. And I think they, they say, well, you know, faith comes through hearing. Yeah, here's the problem. The guy who's arguing with on the blog, he ain't hearing you. He's just trying to argue because he doesn't want to be shown as wrong or he's got this heresy that he happens to be fond of. Okay. People also end up saying, well, I'm going to go defend the Catholic faith because the priests aren't doing it. Yeah, you know, all you're doing is making a mess of it. Okay. In fact, in the past, canon law forbid lay people, which I think that we should actually go back to, it forbid the lay people from engaging in public debate or discourse regarding philosophy and theology without their permission of their bishop. And I think that would be a good thing to go back to because I think it would start quieting things down a little bit. My basic point is, is make sure that what you study isn't the latest and greatest from the guy who happens to hang up his shingle because he calls himself a traditionalist. What you have to do is you have to study the saints and the, the guys that have written about these matters, preferably from before the council. And you're gonna, it's a long, arduous task, right? What you got to study? Morals, right? You just have to study the moral doctrine of the church. Uh, the doctrine itself, ecclesiology. That's a one that's really fraught with difficulties these days. Theology of revelation, which deals with tradition. You have to understand the structure of tradition and how it works. Why? Because 
modernism is a deviation because it transposes the objective criteria for what you believe from an external magisterium, which is actually handing us on objective revelation from generation to generation to oneself. If you don't understand exactly how that mechanism works, you're likely to end up with a lot of problems today. Uh, to start with, I always recommend Spirago's Catechism. Unfortunately, Tan stopped publishing it, but it's still available out there. You can usually dig it up somewhere. Uh, or any other kind of solid basic catechism and branch out from there. The good thing about Spirago is it'll start to fill in areas that you realize I don't know very much about in this area. Could you say that again? Spirago. It's, it's, uh, here, I'll just write it. Or So Spirago, it's, a, it's just called the Catechism Explained. It's basically the Catechism of the Council of Trent with uh, a, a lot of explanation. And it's one of the best out there. The thing I like about it is, is um, I've never read anything in there that didn't line out with what the theologians, and the, um, by theologians I mean those are the theological schools from 1100 to 1750 and the fathers didn't say. So that's the nice thing about it. Uh, and then from there branch out. Do not think just because you've had read a book on a topic that somehow or another you understand the topic. Uh, there's always, you get that from time to time. I used to smile about that when I taught in the seminary. Some guy in the class had read one book on a topic and so he would bring up an objection in relationship to that one book and the way you always kind of quiet him down and subtly humiliate him is just by, yes, but this author says this, and this author says that, and this author says this, and then by the time he's done, he's like, okay, I really, reading the one book doesn't suffice. You have to do a lot of reading in this area, in various areas. But you have to read. You have to get into the habit of reading, which is a good thing because it develops, it helps you remain focus, and it will get your mind off of all the garbage out there too as well. Uh, that also means you have to study the real theological disciplines. Don't sit and think that you're going to really understand Catholic theology by reading the latest and greatest about all the problems in the church. Very early on in my priesthood, I'd read like three or four of these, and I just finally got to the point like, I'm wasting my time with this stuff. Because, first of all, I know as much as they do about the problem. And second of all, um, it's usually... Uh, it, it's. It's usually just one little facet of the latest and greatest problem in the church. Read a lot of the papal documents. My recommendation, this is be my recommendations to start with to get a sense of what the church is actually dealing with. There's a document Rari Vos. Libertas. Prestantissimum by Leo XIII is a really good one for understanding our country and why we have the problems we actually have. This was written you know, back in the 1800s. Pashendi, Dominum Gregis, but this is the document that deals with modernism. Humani Generis, is a good one to start with as well. When you start reading this stuff, the clarity in church documents is astounding when you get through this stuff. It's actually kind of exciting when you read this stuff because you get a, a lot of um, 
uh, a lot of knowledge about this stuff. This is where I would start just in the reading of the papal documents and then from there you can kind of branch out. Generous, sorry. I got a D in penmanship on fourth grade. Okay. This is your goal. What you have to do is build a repertoire of knowledge regarding what the church has always taught in relationship to those things necessary for salvation. That's what you have to achieve. And then from there you can, you can branch out. I'm going to have to edit that one out of the thing so I don't get myself in trouble. Um, okay. The ne- okay, so the first thing is you've got to study. You've got to work at coming to real knowledge of this thing if you're going to navigate and actually save your soul today. It's just not enough. Okay. And it's according to your state in life, obviously. You don't ne- neglect your duties. The next is you have to work on restructuring your family. Obviously, the attack on the family has been key in undermining the psychological and moral development of people and their spiritual development. Destruction of the, of the masculine character, that is, the destruction of manhood, and along with it, what it means to be a father and a true husband, that destruction has resulted in uh, a huge problem on a moral level. The fathers of the church say that it pertains to the father to confirm the moral code. So what that basically means is, is the mother, for all intents and purposes, it's the mother who teaches the kid, no, you can't steal. No, you can't do that. No, you can't. But it's the father's place to say, follow your mother and don't steal. This is what she's saying is right. You don't steal. It's his place to confirm it. If he doesn't confirm it, I'm sure all of you have seen this in families where the mother is doing one thing, but the father is off on la-la land, and the kids end up a basket case. Because there's no, he doesn't back up what she says. That means that men have to man up and start being fathers. So, and that means following that proper structure of him assuming the head, that basically taking on himself the proper role of being head of the household, but in a manner which is done not for his sake, but for the sake of his wife and his children, so that he doesn't make become selfish. It means women have to start working on subordination, and I think this. I mean, I'm. I'm in, I usually encourage women to try and get out of the workforce if they can, and the reason being is is because um, most women will be happier if they're actually at home with their children. I'm sure you've seen story after story after story. One of them that sticks out in my mind was a woman who had reached the top of a manufacturing corporation. She had become the CEO of this manufacturing corporation. It might even have been into pharmaceuticals. But she had reached this level, and she got there, and she, after about a year, she got irritated. She said, I was sold a bill of goods. I was told that once I reached the top and got my career and was successful, I would have this fulfillment, and I got nothing from it. I'd rather be home with my kids, thank you. So she quit the job, which was a multi-million dollar job a year, went home and stayed with her kids, and she was happy as a lamb. Why? Because God structures women that way psychologically. I've often told people that to, and 
part of this all goes back to the communist thing I was talking a little bit about last night, but a lot of it basically boils down to this. It's a bill of goods because this is the story. Swing a sledgehammer, or digging a hole, or even putting something together, or even pushing paper in office, is a far less noble work than forming the mind of a child. When women were basically told that their work at home was less noble or that it wasn't as good as what the guys were doing, they were completely lied to and sold a bill of goods. They're far more, they're, to actually form the, to be at home and to form the child is a more noble activity, frankly. In fact, the reason we know it's a more noble activity is because according to the natural law, the man's job is for the sake of the wife and the children so that she can stay home and be able to do that job. So it's subordinate to that rather than the other way around. Children have to work on obedience and piety. In other words, the normal family structure has to be reestablished. And also piety. Piety is the virtue in which we give honor to our superiors. It's completely gone. It basically started when the greatest generation in raising the hippie generation didn't require them to honor them, basically. And so then they didn't. Then so the hippie generation became obnoxious and from that point on piety was just lost in our culture. This also means that the restructuring also has to find a proper ordering in relationship to the spiritual life. Even though it's true, according to the um, spiritual writers, that women as a general rule are given more grace than men, the fact of the matter is, is it's the father's place to direct the spiritual life of the family. And the fact that most guys just lead that to their wife is absolutely abominable. And the fathers have to reassume that headship in relationship to the spiritual life. But that means he's got to be praying. He's got to be doing those things. He's got to be leading a good moral life. He's got to be working on perfection. So this is just on a natural level. This is one of the things that you actually have to work on. The restructuring of the family life is the only way to restore the order of our society. I'll say this now, only because of the fact that um, I don't mind getting in trouble. (laughs) But there's a line from G.K. Chesterton where he says, I don't know why women want the vote. This was back in the feminist movement, back in the teens and 20s of the last century. He says, I don't know why they want the vote. He said, because a woman can make or break a nation by the way she raises a single child. Where the vote is meaningless, he said, for the most part. Part of the thing that's going to have to happen is, is that, you know, I talked about communism inf- infiltrating of this. This means that various facets of, the, of this complete false doctrine of feminism has to be done. Now, were men treating women badly? Yes, of course, they always have. It's been from the very beginning. But that doesn't mean that the proper order within the family should therefore be undone. And in feminism, I think that the biggest mistake that's been made is the idea 
that, as I mentioned, that the work that a woman does at home is somehow less noble. This not only pertains to the forming of the mind of the child, but just even taking care of the home, providing for the home, cooking and things like that. Stuff that can be a bit of a drudgery, but which actually provide a suitability to the life of the husband and the children that would otherwise be lost. Women don't spend much time at home anymore because they're working. Yeah, they get the clothes done, and yeah, they, make the, they clean things, they make the beds, etc. They're doing the laundry. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's the, the, you know, when I grew up, my mom used to do this from time to time, and you would see this, you know, in, in, in reading about things in the past, how women would do these little things, you know, like little craft projects and little things for the various people in the family or for the house, so that it, there was a certain decorum and suitability to the house that was achieved as a result of that. Now they just go buy stuff and put it up and it doesn't really mean anything. But I think that getting back to the question of voting, I think that one of the things we have to do is go back to the solid understanding that the basic building block of the society is not the individual, but this family. In the past, there were only two people that could vote. The first was uh, the man who was the head of his household. Why? Because he represented the basic building block of the society, the household. When a woman votes, you are essentially splitting the basic building block of the society. Right down the middle. The second component of it is, is the other people that could vote were landowners. And the reason for that is because landowners had a vested interest in making sure that the government didn't get out of hand in regard to entitlement programs because it was going to rob him of his productivity in the end. And so that's why those were the two people that would only vote. The other thing is, do is I can't tell you how many times you listen to this and the wife is voting one way and the husband's voting another, and I'm like, there you go, right? There's a, there's a destruction of the unicity of the family. I think there's also a, it, with feminism, I think, and I, I think eventually the church is just going to have to condemn it, while at the same time upholding the... Uh, and uh, upholding the perfections that are proper to feminine nature. One of the biggest mistakes, I think, about feminism is, is it actually degrades the perfections of, of feminine nature. The fact that women are more emotional for the sake of having that empathy with their children, which, by the way, I'm sure you've heard this with studies, that if, the, that if a child doesn't have that proper empathy, empathy with the mother, or with someone else usually, but usually the mother, then what ends up happening in the first two to five years of their life they can end up with disaffective disorders where they can't emotionally bond with people. I think you've heard me say this. The one thing that uh, psychologists had done the research, the one thing that all these mass murder kids that were in high school or in college went and mowed everybody down, the one thing they all had in common was daycare. So uh, the point being is, is that there are certain the perfections of women have actually, by the feminist movement, been degraded so that they pursue these illusory things that are proper to men. I could never understand why, why, why would you want to, the, the, if you look at the punishment that God gave Adam and Eve, he said to Eve, you know, you shall bear children and child, multiply your conceptions and you will be, um, bear children in pain, right? Okay. So, 
That's her punishment. So then what does she do? She wants to take on Adam's punishment, which was, you have to go work in thorns and by the sweat of your brow. Why are you assuming both punishments? You already got one. You don't need another one. I could never figure that one out. Okay. But I think the real point being is, is hopefully, as time goes on, there will be, you know, when, when all this clears, is that the, the proper role of women will be recognized as with its nobility based upon the perfections that are, that are proper to women instead of denigrating it in a manner which... Because um, and that denigrating it in such a manner that it really it's basically just female self hatred. People, women who really get involved in the feminist movement, when you watch them. In fact, I was watching this one. Um, there was this uh, uh, Hannity was interviewing this one feminist, and there was this comedian sitting next to her, and he was just pressing her buttons, just pressing. Them, right? You'd be happier if you just stayed at home. Of course, she was just and. Um, uh, the sad part of it was is that everything she was saying was actually a manifestation of hatred of what it, what it really meant to be a woman, which is sad, right? Then there's also other considerations in relationship to on a natural level. Okay, so we've, we're entering into a st stage where we could have this chastisement, right? We don't know. I mean, it could drag out or God could do something differently, but it looks like it's coming down the pike, at least from what Our Lady's talking about and the way she's talking, and it's leading up. So then people ask me, okay, well, if there's going to be this chastisement, what about prepping? You know, should I have a bunch of food? No, you should give it to me. No, okay. <laughs> the point, this is, so it basically boils down to this. If you remember in Scripture, Christ does the parable about the guy who builds the towers because he's going to have this thing and Christ makes the observation of how foolish he was because that night he was going to lose, he was going to basically die, right? The point being is, is what? It has to do with you have to be spiritually prepared. You can prep until the cows come home, but I am going to talk a little bit about it. But you can prep until the cows come home, but if you're not spiritually prepared for what's coming down the pike, you're going to be a mess. doesn't matter how much prepping you do. You're not going to be able to psychologically handle it. Natural prudence, natural prudence, putting aside supernatural prudence, natural prudence dictates that we, if we look at our food supply in this country, it's very tenuous. In the average grocery store, there's somewhere between two to three days supply up to three weeks. That's it. That's it. And part of that is because instead of having developed a more agrarian society where people were actually producing the food more locally, we relied on shipping and trucking so that we get our food from all over the place. The problem is, is not much is being grown locally in most areas. Not all areas, but in most areas. I always feel sorry for the guy. If the, ch if the chastisement coming, the, the, the ranchers are going to have a problem because everyone's going to be trying out there poaching their, um, their cattle. But the point being is, is that the food is tenuous. So natural prudence, we also see this with, with uh, things like Katrina and other um, natural disasters. People will go a week to two weeks without it. And then, of course, when the natural disaster starts coming, of course, the grocery stores just get pillaged in a like 24-hour period. right? So natural prudence would dictate that you should have at least some food supply. Even our federal government, who I'm not particularly fond of, itself has said, you know, you should have a certain amount of food on hand. 
even though they may, I think if I'm not mistaken, if you have more than six weeks, it's illegal by federal law. I think that's something to research. But here's the thing I tell people, I say, what do you think of that law? It's an unjust law. They can't tell you that. Right? It's like them telling you that you can't, it's, it's the same problem with um, telling people that they can't develop the virtue of sobriety in their children by allowing them to drink something at home before the age of 18. Excuse me, but the parents have the natural rights to develop a proper virtue of sobriety in the child. Right? So you can't say that, you know, because what does the government do? Well, when he's 18, he's on his own. He doesn't have to listen to you. But by that time, oh, no, but you can't let him drink until he's 18. Oh, yeah. Okay. So anyway, that being said. So you should have some basic food storage and some kind of water supply. Basic. Now, don't think that in having this, you're safe. In fact, my joke is, if you got food supply, you better also have an ammo supply. Because people are not virtuous. But death can come like a thief in the night. Uh, as I said, don't think this is going to save you or even make your life easier. Father should just do it as a basic supplying for the sake of the children and his wife. But you have to remember to whom the effects of the chastisement extends is entirely the choice of God. Now, you can pray that you're spared the effects of it. And that's a good thing to pray you're spared the effects of it. And your children and your uh, relatives, etc., are spared the effects of it. But it's really up to God to determine it. That's why Our Lady said in the quote I read last night that it will affect even priests and even the good priests and faithful. It's going to get all of us. So just remember, all the prepping in the world isn't going to make it any easier if God chooses otherwise. So what does this mean? It means, okay, so there's some basic things that you need to do. One, you need to start reading and become more knowledgeable about the faith in order to navigate the problems that are occurring with the church, just on a natural level. Second, you've got to get your family strengthened in order so that it doesn't end up succumbing to some, some of the basic problems. And then just on a natural level, make sure that, you ha you know, that you're doing those things that um, you can survive. Just basic uh, societal collapse. Because, you know, the only reason our society has not collapsed is because of technology. Technology is the thing that's keeping this afloat. Every other culture, every other culture in the history of humanity that has gotten this disordered has never survived this long. And the only reason is, is because we're propping this thing up through technology and we're propping it up by fraud. The reason we have such a phenomenal economy is because we keep propping it up with this creation of money out of thin air. Eventually that's going to, you can't do it forever. So, eventually this is going to come down. This also means, though, that you should also study. You need to have a decent knowledge. Not a lot. It should be according to your state in life. You should have a decent knowledge of what's really going on in the world. Now, I'm not talking about getting into conspiracy theories. What I'm saying is... If you honestly believe that what you're seeing on TV is the truth, I have some land in Florida I would love to sell you. 
which actually I don't, of course. The point being is, is that the people who are evil are systematically lying and manipulating, to, uh, manipulating us. It's a, it's a historical fact that the government in this country began social experimentation right after World War II by doing what? There was a thing called Operation Paperclip where they bought a bunch of these scientists from Germany over here, whitewashed their war crimes, and used them to do social engineering and restructuring in this country. Let me give you an example, a simple example. The anti-smoking laws in this country were modeled exactly after the anti-smoking laws and campaign in Nazi Germany. Very successful. Germans were great at this stuff. Okay. The point being is, is that, you know, it's a good idea to be knowledgeable about the fact that you're being lied to and B, what's the real story. And so, you know, reading solid books, I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of them, but just reading solid books that will actually give you a Catholic understanding of what's going on here will be very helpful. So those are some basic things that you're going to do on a natural level. And part of this is just that you can have a perspective. So one, the knowledge gives you the perspective, and then the family life gives you a structure that you can plug into and have a normalcy of life. We are living in an insane culture. And the more insane it becomes, the less it is going to be like the normal family life, normal family structure, the normal society structure. The one thing you have to be prepared for is, as the culture continues to decay, we are in free fall. There's nothing putting the brakes on this. I mean, Trump's trying, but it's like I said, as you drain the swamp, all you're doing is getting more stink coming up. Okay. But as this declines, which by the way, it can't stop the decline unless God puts, puts the brakes on it, but it can't decline, it, it, it's, it's declining in such a manner that eventually you have to accept the fact that in the end, you're gonna be the one that's considered evil. You're the one that's gonna be considered out of your mind. You're, even though you're the, you're the only sane one around, right? You just have to expect that. And that means your relationship in the church, with the people in the church, and in the culture, you're going to have to take a very specific spiritual approach to it, which we're going to talk about in the next conference. But just accept the fact that this is just going to simply get worse. That will come when we talk about detachment. Okay. So you can do all these things on a natural level, but in the end, you have to have your spiritual things in order. And that's what we'll talk about in the next conference. So if you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedicto de omnipotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, Supervos et Manet Semper. Amen. Amen.